0: Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker.
1: On today's episode of Worker Movement, we'll talk about the economics of hoarding toilet paper and why people have felt the need to fill their carts full of toilet paper during the coronavirus at various stores. What has compelled people to feel the need to acquire large sums of toilet paper? Whereas in the past, they haven't. What has changed?
0: So is this hoarding? Or yeah, or, or has there been a change um, in the workplace itself? Has there been a change in the overall demand for toilet paper?
1: I don't think that during the pandemic, people are actually consuming or using more toilet paper. I think it's an, a fear. It's an aversion. It's this uncertainty about when they can buy a toilet paper in the future. But what's interesting about this toilet paper phenomenon is that demand is going to remain static as is our ability to produce toilet paper, which is different from other finite resources that are suddenly uh, incurring an increase in demand such as PPE, and 95 masks, gowns, face shields. So what does it say that people are affording toilet paper but at the same time, we're running short on other important necessities.
0: So I want to dig a little bit deeper into this because hoarding is, is an interesting phenomenon right now. But it's also that the demand has shifted a little bit, actually a lot. So people are no longer going uh, to a place of business to conduct work. They're doing a lot more work at home. So the question is, is if they're no longer consuming 12 paper at work, are they shifting that consumption at home? And the answer is yes, they are. So they are consuming more toilet paper and resources inside of their own house, which then leading to a strain on the consumer grade toilet paper production. Because we have to remember that toilet paper is produced in two different formats: one, uh, commercial grade, which is the terrible stuff that comes on giant rolls that's designed to basically give you the limited amount or the smallest amount of pleasure you can get or comfort you can get. Um, while going to the bathroom at work or place of business, compared to uh, consumer grade, which is designed to be soft, quilted, um, ultralight, very nice, I guess, and comforting. So can you switch production quickly? And the answer is no, you cannot switch between commercial and consumer grade very quickly because the system has been designed ultimately uh, to have peak efficiency knowing what the demands are at a constant volume for both commercial and consumer. And because they are two different grades of toilet paper, you cannot easily just convert a machine that's for commercial grade into consumer grade. And that leads to basically a strain within the system on the consumer grade. When I can say consumer grade, I mean, that is all your big brands. That's what we go to when you buy the, the three ply or four ply, the jumbo roll, whatever you get in the 12 pack. So that is the, um, consumer grade. Where the commercial grade, again, is those giant rolls that sit in those black containers in the urinals or the stalls that seem to have 10,000 feet of toilet paper on there that have cuts potentially every third um, regular square instead of every square, uh, that only have two ply, that are of a different fiber type than the consumer grade. So again, all of these small little features that, that you have between the two uh, consumer and commercial grade add up to very big changes that are required in order to convert. So right now, what we're seeing is that it's it's a combination of both hoarding and a very limited and strained uh, consumer-grade 12-paper. So
1: people are going to the store to buy toilet paper because they're using less of it at work.
0: Right, exactly. They need 12-paper, right? So instead of getting your free 15, right, you know, never shit for free. <laughs> Always go to work. Always do it on at company work. time. Right? Do it on company time. Get paid for it. That's what a good worker would do. Uh, instead of that, or doing it at school, right, you have, you have every child is now home from school. Every worker in large corporate offices at our home. Anybody that's a small business is, is at home. Anybody that's on a contract job that would have been doing John's, you know, any any restaurant that would have had people coming in and out, and, and you may not consider yourself, you know, um, part of that, that flux, what you are. I mean, if, if you go to the bathroom, uh, and this may be a little bit personal, but if you go to the bathroom three out of seven days a week, you know, outside, or you can say three out of 10 times, whatever it is, and you come home, that's like a 30% increase in the amount of time. You people.
1: don't mean outside, you mean right. outside of the home.
0: So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah. Yeah, outside in the bushes, uh, where you use leaves, no, yeah, outside of the home. And so that demand, if you're home all the time, means that you're going to demand more. And you're going to not only you going to demand more, but everybody demands more. Your neighbors, everybody you know demands more. And then it comes from the, uh, the fact that, again, they were expecting demand A, and now they're getting demand B, and you cannot easily just take a machine that's a wet-lay, uh, fiber-based process that has cuts and slits at certain sizes and certain roll speeds and, and line tension and automatically spin this thing up to go 30% faster. That's not how that works. So, so a lot of engineering has to go into place in order to get to that. So spot. there's
1: an underlying engineering reason and an economic reason why there is a toilet paper shortage, but the toilet paper shortage is also driven by fear and that people are over consuming and purchasing more toilet paper than they need out of uh, this concept of fear or future uncertainty. So there's a, there's an increase in demand perhaps a decrease in supply, but really the demand is static. There's only so much toilet paper that needs to be utilized.
0: Yeah. And I like, I like how you, you phrase a little bit about the economics. So, so quickly touch back on, on the commercial grade. Remember the commercial grade is designed to be the cheapest, shittiest to say that term, ironically, or or punning, I guess, <laughs> uh, toilet paper you can have, Um because it's all about margins and the more overhead you have when it comes to things like your building, right? The less profits you take home. So you, you try to bid, you try to get, you know, you buy bulk, you know, giant box, you try to get supply chain reductions. You try to get the cheapest thing you can have. You try to get your, your day porters and not have to do anything like, you know, change the rules more than once every three days. So you try to get these massive multi turreted looking things that, that allow seven rolls to be stuck together so you decrease your labor Looks time. like there's a roll on, on top of your roll. A roll on top of a roll, yes. We'll continue, yes. And so you just run in there and someone just slams a thousand rolls as, as they can into and something and leaves. And that's all, again, to, to squeeze as much margin and as much profit out as possible. And again, those, those are not given back to the worker, right? All that money that they're saving on toilet paper and your comfort is going back to the top.
1: So capitalism. So we make shitty toilet paper for the corporations so that people don't spend all their time in the bathroom. So there's some incentives at work here as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Next thing they're going to make the toilets really tall. So it would make your legs hurt to sit down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anything they can increase. Make you
1: like squat instead of having like an actual seat.
0: Yeah. Yep. And have the lights turn off at the 15 minutes. You can't take a nap. (laughs) Because people would nap if the toilet paper was better, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Pull the roll out and put it like a pillow. Use like a pillow. Yeah. Of course.
1: So with toilet paper, we're not really able to scale our production. Uh, And we're not really able to scale our production of stuff like uh, N95 masks uh, for very similar reasons. The The masks uh, that are built in factories are designed to be 100% efficiency because it doesn't economically make sense to produce a factory that only runs 50% of the time. Any factory that produces anything is going to be designed to produce whatever good it's producing as efficiently as possible. And that's true with toilet paper and it's true with N95 masks.
0: That's exactly right. Uh, the same, the same idea happens. If, if we know we have X amount of construction jobs a year, and X amount of um, surgeries, or, or or just a constant load, you know, seasonality at diseases, things that we we can forecast using different models, like real models or whatever you're going to say for forecasting, then that means that we can predict what our loads are, and we can design not only inventory holds, but also production schedules in order to uh, optimize the most efficient way of generating uh, PVs.
1: And there's some staged approach.
0: And so that means that any
1: time... So there's there's also some staged approaches to how manufacturing is done, where first you create the material and then the material gets stored in a warehouse. And then you know at some future date, there's a, another factory that's scheduled to take that role and produce the actual good. So there's all sorts of dependency planning that's necessary. And it's difficult to suddenly say, well, I wanna make 10,000 more masks but you're like, well, I don't have the raw material to make the material that the masks are made out of. So there becomes sort of a supply chain dependency that needs to be fulfilled before more masks can be produced.
0: Exactly right. So so if we think about this blown melt process, uh, we think about the raw material, so we're looking at some, some polymer that comes in. There's only a certain amount of suppliers on Earth that make large enough batches to make the polymer. Of N95 masks. And then you have to not only make it, and for N95 mass. so now you have to make the polymer, then you have to transport that in, you then have to make the webbing itself, whatever process you're using to make the webbing, which has generally been done the most efficiently as possible, because that's what you're trying to drive to is as much production as possible, so you don't have to buy another plant or another factory, so you optimize the process to meet your demand, because who wants to spend 20 million dollars on a new line? Nobody does, because if you have capital that's already depreciated then you're making basically cash. It's paying for itself minus, minus your daily expenditures, your overhead. So the, there's a capitalistic incentive to try to squeeze as much efficiency efficiency out as possible. And anytime time there's a surge that like we're having now, again, you cannot just scale up these machines and say, I want to go 50% faster. And even if you mothballed some and you have some plants sitting around, it's not easy to bring up a whole new line in which you have workers who are not trained, you don't have the polymer there like you're saying, you don't have testing out, like, the uh, equipment that actually forms a mask. You don't have the test in place to make sure it is actually not N95s. And you don't have the supply chain for shipment. So all those things together, if you take a look at a CPOC, or a supplier input uh, process, output, and customer supply chain analysis, means that you cannot just quickly move from, you know, 100 to 150%. There's just there's no way of doing it. And then you end up asking people to work overtime, you push everybody to the limits, and it actually puts a giant strain on the entire system itself. What should have been done is an inventory buildup, knowing that a pandemic is possible.
1: So under our current economic system, which is capitalism, there's no incentive for a company to overproduce basically any good. So uh, had we known that this pandemic was coming, there should have been, a, like you said, an effort to scale up production. Uh, and the decision to scale up this production needs to be done in the context of what is good for the, the general welfare, the well-being of society. And that is not a decision that corporations make which are seeking profits. So what needs to happen to handle these surge activities at a societal level? So we have this concept of a, a national uh reserves for various economic goods like oil. Uh, There was a supply for medical equipment like ventilators and masks, but we've exhausted our surplus effectively from these reserves. So what do we actually do to produce more given that we don't have current factory capacity and we need this stuff basically now?
0: You, you just, keep making around the clock and so if you take a look at in the manufacturing context normally what you do is you hit you hit your peak volumes at whatever time of the year let's say october is your peak volume time and you're going to run your machines at 100 percent time and you're going to schedule pms which is preventative maintenances um after that peak volume hits so what's going to happen now is they're not going to be able to do the preventative maintenances they're going to have to just run around the clock they're not going to have any downtime instead of running three fives or two fives, which means two shifts five times a day, or three shifts five times a day. A lot of our workers know that they're forced you know, forced overtime. You're going to come in on a Saturday and a Sunday, and now you're going to be working three-sevenths. And you're going to be pushing not only the worker, you're going to be pushing the machines and the supply chain to full capacity. So, again, there is hidden capacity in places, and that's because we, we generally don't want to pay overtime wages to the workers because we don't want to lose those margins because if I'm paying somebody 50% more per hour, to make something which is the weekend percentages I'm losing margins and so again back to capitalism we've made the work week the most efficient work week we don't want to pay for nights or over or, um afternoon so we reduce those shifts again and we're trying to squeeze as much efficiency out during the week work week as we can so what happens now in order to get the surge volumes we're gonna to go to seven days a week pushing everybody as hard as we can and that means fixing things on the fly so when the machine goes down it's not making sure it's done right. It's being done to get the machine back up, which means now we might have quality issues with our mask. We may be shipping product that doesn't actually meet standards. Now they'll argue with you and say that does meet standards, but now we're, because we're pressing so hard, we may not be actually sending out N95s. There may be some flaws in the system because you cannot check every mask and you cannot make sure the process is 100% every single time. And so the scary part is that because of the surge, we may be actually endangering people more just by the fact that we've strained our system.
1: So are we able to meet demand by just surging, or do we fundamentally need to build more factories in order to produce more goods?
0: In my mind, we should be building more factories to produce more goods and hold reserves. Because so, the issue is also that the supply chain gets broken at the hospital too, because... Now hospitals are for profits, especially in the United States, which means there's no incentive for them to hold inventory.
1: So they rely
0: on daily trucks or weekly trucks to deliver them the PPEs that need to perform the surgeries, to have the mask and the supplies they need. And so if they don't have a closet full of masks and this epidemic breaks out, they have to wait for uh, Johnny Delivery Guy to drop off the mask from the supply guy who has it in a warehouse somewhere who just turned in a quick turn from – the manufacturer who just shipped in the mask because they already are a month behind on what their predictions are. Right. So it's it's removing that that capitalistic incentive of quick turns, no inventory, high margins as much as you can out of the entire system. So
1: in order to remove these profit-driven motives, what incentive is there for a corporation to build a second factory to produce goods? In the context of how the US has historically handled this issue. Uh, like for example, in World War II, we had companies that were mobilized to produce tanks and planes and other war necessary products. They weren't given an opportunity to do this. They were told to do this and profits were effectively a secondary consideration. Uh, currently, the Defense Production Act, which is, a, which is an act that allows uh, the president to declare or tell a private corporation to do something uh, in in which they're still compensated, uh, hasn't been invoked. It's a tool that we could be using to tell companies that make masks to produce more masks. And this would create an economic incentive to build new factories. They're still getting compensated, uh, but it it eliminates the profit motive through a kind of centrally planned government mandated approach.
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly what we need. Essentially plan means that, that we know that the hospitals in Georgia and the hospitals in LA and hospitals in New York all have different surge needs. And we know that they have all different requirements. And essentially plan means that the federal government would know what it would take in every region um, to house those things and invoking that act would mean that we would have the ability to not only demand uh, production but seizing the means of production means that we can actually return that to society's benefit instead of it being the benefit of the stockholders and now is the benefit of the worker and we wouldn't see such you know devastating you know, pictures online in which we show you know um, doctors and nurses who have worn masks for 12 hours who can't take off a mask they're issued one a day or workers who are considered essential workers who are given one paper mask and a plexiglass barrier. Seizing the means of production means that we would be able to to tell companies like 3M that it's time to make masks for the betterment of society. Here's how much you're going to get paid per mask. And they're generating what we need. And then housing those masks are perfect because there's nothing that goes wrong with the mask for a few years. So there's nothing that we can say that we can't hold inventory. And when the inventory begins to age, we then sell it off or give it to whatever hospital or group needs it. And so we have a rotating in product line. And because we're holding enough for a million people to be sick, that means that it provides us the ability to actually care for those when they get sick, instead of putting risk in the lives of our EMS, our nurses and our doctors continuously during this epidemic. We
1: absolutely have the labor and the technological know-how to produce the number of masks we need, but we don't have the, the proper motive. So by creating effectively what you're suggesting, which is a government mandated and structured manufacturing entity, we put people to work. They produce the goods and services that are needed by the country to fulfill the PPE shortage. We put people back to work. The economic issues of people staying home would be Diminished to some extent, uh, but it would solve the immediate health crisis, which would enable the economy to reopen eventually, whereas if we continue to have a PPE shortage, nothing will get better.
0: And we talked about this in the last episode, that basically the surges and the cyclical nature of it means that we're going to have a constant battle on our hands. Every three months, it's going to surge, and then wane, and then we'll surge again. And in that meantime, are you going to be able to create enough volume to have surplus, or are you going to create enough volume to just catch up to where you were? And my fear is that we're going to catch up to where we were, unless there's a mandate, which means we're going to constantly have this shortage issue. It won't be everywhere, but it'll be regional. It'll be country by country, but it'll still be – a Uh, creating a pain and suffering for people that could have been avoided if we just told people enough is enough, it's time to make more machines, and it's time to hold inventory. And that goes for everybody from the manufacturer to the um, basically holding companies or distribution centers. they They have warehouse spaces. They should be able to hold X amount of square feet for the U.S. government to make sure that we have mandated PPE. If we make them hold 1,000 square feet in their 100,000 square foot unit, that's not going to be too much of a burden for them. If we tell 3M or other large companies they have to produce 10% for the government, that's not too much of a burden for them. If we had to tell Dow and Exxon to bring more uh, polymer in for these masks, that's not going to be too much of a burden for them. And if we tell machine makers, because you know who makes machines. I mean, they make these machines all the time. it's it's a demand from top-down. You tell the machine makers to make machines, you tell the manufacturers to manufacture it, and you tell the suppliers to start supplying it. You tell the distribution centers to hold it, right? And then you tell hospitals they must hold an X percentage in their own pocket. And it gives us a very solid supply chain, which means the next time there's a surge, we have the ability to distribute it and share resources across the United States instead of having this sort of state-by-state fight in which states are outbidding each other. In rural America, is going get, to get hit hard because they don't have the means to buy things because those hospitals are on the edge of our, uh, bankruptcy anyways. And this profit motive is really what's causing this cancer within the United States that's really eating away at our ability to respond to things. And there's a little
1: bit of a feedback loop where if we were to just manufacture enough masks and then, oh, no, we've run out, we have to ramp back up manufacturing, which means we have to move the supply chain, which means we have to move the goods and services, no, it's, it's always this catch-up concept, whereas if we kind of preemptively scale, we can take advantage of basic economic concepts like economies of scale, where suddenly we have a large in- infrastructure where everything is well-cadenced, uh, raw goods are produced, they're shipped to the next place, which does whatever they do with it, which ships the polymers, which ships the finished product. It's just a continuous linear cycle of start to finish. There aren't any hiccups. There aren't any uh, sort of phase delays as we say, oh, we have enough masks right now, so we're going to stop production. No, it should just be continuous. It's both most efficient and it's what we need to withstand uh, some of the future unknowns and to deal with future demand associated that we can already
0: predict. Yeah, and one of the, the – I don't want to call it the best it's one of the most perverse examples is, – is the buildup of the U.S. military. So that supply chain has private contractors and entire companies whose job it is is to make sure and maintain the U.S.'s ability to immediately scale a global war, which means they have government surplus, guns. You you can buy them if you want to. You can buy government surplus ammunition as it starts to go bad. You go to those government supply shops that that are out there because they've overproduced material and material goods in case there is ever a war. And when they start to go bad or they're outdated, they get rid of them at a very cheap rate because the U.S. government, and this is for a future episode uh, potentially, values war before it values health care. And so the same law should apply to healthcare care as it does to the U.S. military in which we can have a surplus. We have the ability to mobilize the supply chain almost immediately to fight these type of things, these pandemics. And it comes from all over the place. It doesn't just have to be a viral thing. It, it's the failures of FEMA underneath every single administration that's ever had it. So that's probably Bush and, and uh, Obama. The inability of the government to actually act when needed. During times of crisis, and it seems odd to me that we can spend all this time uh, uh, on the military part, but, but not on the domestic. And it seems like the domestic is more important as you move forward with climate change, uh, with the increase in the number of uh, viruses and, and potential other vectors of attack uh, on us from nature, right? And as what's happening is, as West now moves north from Florida up, as the brain eating amoebas happen. Right, there's all these things that could happen to kick off another pandemic just here domestically. And so we should be treating this just as if it was wartime, just as if we needed a civilian buildup.
1: And one of the key Same components exactly. to how we handle wartime manufacturing is that product designs are effectively shared amongst various producers. So by defining a, a sort of open source N ninety five mask design and manufacturing process. Uh, We open the door to allow any company that does manufacturing or that is tangentially related and capable of doing manufacturing to produce a mask. They don't have to develop the mask. They don't have to develop the manufacturing process. They don't have to develop the machines to make the mask. They are able to look at designs that already exist and scale their capacity to meet the demand that the u.s government is stating exists and and does exist but stating that we need to produce this amount
0: you're right and we we can do things too and i know and i and i am not a proponent of capitalism so i'd say this with a very you know a bad taste of my mouth you can do things where you limit certain sectors of of manufacturing to being able to sell to the general public population. So let's say we want Company X to reduce Company Y design, the Company X cannot sell it externally. They're just producing and they get a raw contract like from the government as as an actual producer. And in that way, it limits the um, competition between the companies, one that develops the technology and the other that's simply manufacturing. And those things. Yeah, you see that all the time
1: in military support contracts where one company designs and builds a helicopter and another company that actually competed on the design and build of that helicopter wins the support contract. This is not like a foreign concept. Uh, It generally works, it's semi capitalistic in nature, but it yields the desired outcome that is generally best for the well-being of you know, citizens by saying we have this need and we're going to meet this need.
0: Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And, and it, it, again, we're not here to uh, be a of that. We're here to basically say that the workers have been uh, basically uh, targeted, that shouldn't seem targeted, but because of the way that, that we've limited our domestic programs, we've left our most vulnerable right, to, to take this disease. We've left nursing homes to be hit with pandemics. We've let people who were the first waves to basically be caught, you know, with the inability to actually be treated, right? And these essential workers our nurses and our people that are, are basically working within these hospitals, even things from physical therapists, physical therapy assistants, dentists, all these people that actually have to care for people are, are left with the, with, without protection, exposing themselves and their own family. All because of capitalism in nature, or capitalism as a way in which we're always squeezing margins.
1: For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.